Hello. Today we are going to be looking at Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And I've called today's sermon, The Day the Mountain Trembled. It's the account of how God revealed himself for the very first time to the nation of Israel. The setting is in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai, a very sacred place. It's the place where God revealed his glory for the very first time in an unprecedented way. It's the place where Moses goes up to meet with God, to receive the book of the covenant, to receive the Ten Commandments. It is also here at the foot of Mount Sinai that the Israelites make the golden calf. But it is a, a hugely significant place in Israel's history. And as I've prepared for the sermon and read chapters 19 and 20 and many more, I've asked myself the question, what are these chapters about? And I believe that what happened here at Mount Sinai has to do with God giving his people an identity. Telling his people who they are, what they mean to him, and what their purpose is. God is shaping his people's identity here at Mount Sinai. But equally important, God is shaping how his people are to think of him. Specifically to do with his holiness, his power, and his majesty. So let's begin to read at the beginning of Exodus 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Let's begin today by focusing on these amazing words, verses 4 to 6. These are the words that God tells Moses to, to speak to the Israelite people. As I said, God is defining who they are, giving them an identity, reminding them of what their purpose is. They're wonderful words, and I believe they're words that we can apply to ourselves as Christians. And there are five things in these few verses that I want to highlight. Let's begin with verse 4. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. 
God's saying here, remember what I have done. The theme of remembering is is strong in the Bible. Many of the Psalms are, are, are about remembering, where the psalmist recounts the amazing things that God has done. In the New Testament, when we share communion, that is about remembering the death of Jesus. The Bible is is big on remembering. That's why God says, you yourselves know how I brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. I'm reminding you of this fact. The other day I needed to encourage myself. And so what I did was write out a long list of all the amazing things that God has done for me and for my family. And I took time to remember the blessings of God. And I would encourage you to do the same. So God says to these Israelites, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Remembering is an important spiritual practice. As the old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. You will be surprised to see what God has done. What God has done for us in the past builds our faith for the future. So here's God reminding the Israelites how they got to be in the desert. He's reminding them why they're camping at the foot of a mountain. He's saying, remember, I raised up Moses. I sent the plagues. I I beat down the Egyptians and I rescued you. Remember this. But these verses get better Then God says, you've seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings. This is such an encouraging verse, is it not? It's a picture of an eagle swooping down and catching its young when they've fallen out of the nest. What a beautiful picture of God caring for us, his people. That, that little eaglet may feel as though it is in free fall, but the, the parent eagle comes down and, and catches it. And that's the picture here. And God is reminding the Israelites, that's what I've done for you. I've, I've carried you on, on, on eagle's wings. This same picture is used again in Deuteronomy 32. Verse 9, again, the Lord says, remember that, you know, you're my portion. I found you in a desert land and I cared for him, Israel. I guarded him as the apple of my eye. And like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over the young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. What an amazing description of God's care in our lives. He catches us and he carries us on eagles' wings. Thirdly, he says, I brought you 
to myself. You've seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. We must never forget that it is God who brings a person to himself. We don't choose God. He chooses us. The Israelite people didn't wake up one morning and decide they were going to be God's chosen nation. That's not how it works. And if you are a Christian today, it is because God has chosen you. God has worked in a special way in your life. And he has brought you to himself. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them to himself. And then we have, fourthly, another lovely picture here of God. He says in verse 5, Now if you obey me and, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine. Again, this is a lovely picture. It's like an incredibly wealthy king who still has a small box of his absolute favorite things. A treasure box. The Hebrew word is segula. And, and that's the picture here of a, a wealthy person, a person with great abundance, still having some very special things that bring them joy. And this is what God says his people are like. This is who Israel is to God. This is what the church is to God. We are his treasured possession. We are his segula. Out of all the peoples of the earth, the church, and at this time Israel, was God's special possession. What he's saying here is that we exist to bring God's pleasure. I think sometimes we forget that. That's at the heart of our identity and our purpose. And those of us who have been chosen by God and who are in a special relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are his treasured possession. He loves us. He derives great pleasure from us. I'm reminded of Paul's writing in Ephesians 1 where he talks about how God has chosen us. And he did all of this in accordance with his good pleasure and will. In verse 9 of Ephesians 1, he also talks about God has done all of this and adopted us into his, his family according to his good pleasure. Let's never forget that we are God's segula, his special treasure. And then God reminds the Israelites what their purpose is. Verse 6 of chapter 19, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
This is why God has called the Israelites to himself. This is why they're precious to him. They are to represent him in the world. And I can't help but thinking of what Peter wrote in in the second chapter. He, He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And of course, Peter has in mind these verses from Exodus 19, when he writes to the Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, God's special treasured possession. So in these opening verses of Exodus chapter 19, God is defining his people's identity. He's telling them how much they mean to him. He's reminding them that it's he who has saved them, that it is he who is carrying them like an eagle carries its chicks. And he reminds them that we are special And that we are to represent him here in the world. We are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And now for the rest of chapter 19, God is revealing what he is like. He is revealing some of his identity. Let's read together from verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Verse 14, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. And they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. 
and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord. And many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. And then at the end of chapter 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. It's very easy when we read what we've just read to think, well, that's very Old Testament. We don't think of God like that anymore. But what we should not do is dismiss what the Bible teaches about God in the Old Testament and say, well, we have a newer revelation, a better revelation. No, what we need to do is hold fast to the revelation of God in the Old Testament and, and understand it together with what we know of God from the New Testament. It's not about swapping out what we learn about God in the Old Testament for what we learn about Him in the New. It's about keeping it all together. So what's going on here? It all sounds a little hectic. Why these rules and regulations? The need for the people to wash their clothes? The days of preparation? The need to abstain from sexual relations? This is God impressing on His people the importance and gravitas of what they are about to experience. They were going to encounter God on the mountain and they needed to get themselves ready. They had to prepare mentally, emotionally, spiritually and physically. This is God shaping his people's understanding of who he is. Even the mountain needed to be cordoned off, fenced off so that people wouldn't approach God. Because whoever touched the mountain would need to be put to death, says verse 12. 
It's even significant how those unfortunate souls were to be put to death. They were, they were regarded as being unclean because they had profaned the Lord's sanctuary, the, the sacred space where God was going to come down. And so they needed, the command is, they needed to be stoned or shot with arrows. No one was to even touch those individuals if they broke God's laws. I think this instruction shows how seriously God takes his presence and his holiness and is instilling in his people a reverence for himself. And from verse 16, we read what happened when the presence of God descends on the mountain. At the end of verse 16, we read that everybody in the camp trembled. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. Friends, try to imagine what is happening here. This must have been frightening for, for God to reveal his glory in this manner. In theology, we refer to this as a theophany. It is an appearance of God. Previously, God had revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. But this was on a scale a thousand times greater than that. This was a massive revelation of the presence and of the glory of God. And there was fire and smoke and lightning and thunder. And the very mountain itself, Mount Sinai, shook. No wonder the people trembled. And even in the midst of this great revelation, God has to call Moses to the top of the mountain. And when Moses gets there, God says, Moses, you need to go down and remind the people not to get too close, lest they die. As human beings, we just seem to have this innate desire to push the boundaries with God. To get as close as we can, to be as familiar as we can with God. To treat God like he's one of us. But it's passages like this in the Bible that remind us that God is great. That God is to be revered. That God is to be feared. So much so that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. God is impressing his holiness upon his people. And this great event, this great manifestation of God's presence is, is referenced in Hebrews chapter 12. And that's why we know it still has relevance for us today. Hebrews 12 says this, Hebrews 12, 18. 
It's written to New Testament believers. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. That's not your experience. You haven't come to darkness, gloom and storm to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. We haven't come to that mountain. But verse 22 says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. We still meet with God, albeit in a different context and in a different way. But the author here in Hebrews is reminding us that we too need to revere God. He says this, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, that would be Moses, how much less if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven, that's Jesus. The message is this, if you think that meeting with God back then required preparation, consecration, and holiness, it's the same today. Here's the reminder, verse 28, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, the God that revealed himself to the, the Israelites in, in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, that's the same God that we approach today. Fortunately, we come in and through the, the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, through the work of Jesus. We approach God in that way. But we to remember that we are approaching a holy God who deserves reverence, who deserves to, to be revered. He is a consuming fire. The, in the last part of the sermon, I want to talk about some other characteristics of God that he reveals in the giving of the Ten Commandments. We could have focused on the Ten Commandments themselves, but I don't think there was time to do that in any meaningful way. I want us to just consider a few key phrases from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So here we have the first of the Ten Commandments. Again, there is the stress on remembering. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. And then we have the, the first commandment. You are to have no other gods before me. No other gods in front of me, before me. 
What is the essence of this first commandment? Fundamentally, this is God demanding our absolute loyalty and allegiance. The first of the Ten Commandments says, don't have anything in your life that is more important than me. Don't let anything get in the way of your devotion to me. God is saying that he's not willing to occupy second place in our lives. You must have no other gods before me. God commands our full allegiance. It reminds me of Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 9.62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Because God is so great, when it comes to our relationship with him, he commands that nothing comes before our allegiance to him. The second commandment is interesting. It's this, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Here God is outlawing his people representing him in any way at all. How did idol worship work in the Old Testament? I think as Christians, we often misunderstand it. But people would make sacred objects that would represent the spirits and the gods that they believed in. And this commandment, the second commandment, is that God's people were never to do that. They were never to create or make anything to help them to remember and represent for them what God, who God is. The Hebrew verbs are specifically do not cut anything. Don't, don't shape something. And you'll of course know that even altars in the Old Testament were, were never to be made with cut stones. They would only to be made with, with rocks that were untouched. God didn't want his people in any way shaping things to help them in their worship. The people didn't actually worship the objects that they'd made, but rather those idols, those images, those sacred things became a representation or a proxy for this God and the spirit that they worshipped. And that was the culture of the day. And God says to his people, I never want you to do that. Don't cut or shape something to try to represent me. This is why the Israelites made the golden calf. This is another story that I think we often misunderstand. When the Israelites made the golden calf, they really thought that they were worshipping Yahweh, their God. 
A bull, after all, is a mighty animal. And so to make a calf out of gold was, was something that they thought was a good thing to do. That's why Aaron is, is leading the process. They really thought that they were doing the right thing. They say in Exodus 32 and verse 1, Come, let us make gods, Elohim, who will go before us. And they use the gold that they've been blessed with when they plundered the Egyptians and they make this golden calf. And Aaron and others say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. They really think that they're worshipping Yahweh. Aaron even says in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And when you see in the Bible, Lord, in capital letters, it means it is the Hebrew word Yahweh. When Aaron is doing all of this, when they're creating the golden calf, they really believe they are worshipping Yahweh and trying to honor him. And we know that when we disobey God, there are always consequences. And as usual, the, the idolatry of that day led to sexual immorality. The next day, the, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and indulged in revelry. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 1 and verse 22, that when people forsake the true knowledge of God, when people stop worshipping God in the way he's commanded us to worship him, it leads to all sorts of things. Paul writes, Romans 1.22, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And that included sexual immorality and the degrading of their bodies with one another. Sometimes we can think that we're honoring God because we're doing something the way our culture says it should be done. Everybody made images of their gods. And that's why the second commandment is do not make an image to represent me. And in closing, I want us now just to look at what it means that God is a jealous God. Look at verse 5 of Exodus 20. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation but showing loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? 
It is actually a very common description for God. Here are some other references. Exodus 34. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Here's Moses' speech, Deuteronomy 4. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Here's Joshua 24. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. How are we to understand this phrase that God is jealous? In the English language, jealousy tends to have negative connotations. We normally don't mean well when we say that someone is jealous. But what does jealous mean in the Bible? Well, it's very closely linked to the word zealous. God is jealous and zealous. And what exactly is he talking about? Well, jealousy, even in English, can be defined in this way. Being solicitous or vigilant in maintaining and guarding something. That's from dictionary.com. Here's the Oxford Dictionary also explaining and defining jealousy. It means to be fiercely protective of one's rights and possessions. So what does it mean when it is used of God, that he is a jealous God, that jealous is his name? It means that God is passionate about our loyalty to him. He doesn't want us being loyal and loving something else in preference to him. God can't stand diluted loyalty. He desires our complete devotion. Anything less than that is unacceptable. That's what it means when it says God is jealous for us. Here are two examples from the New Testament where the word jealous is used in a positive way. Here's Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I've promised you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. That's Paul talking about the church. I'm, I'm jealous for the church with a godly jealousy. And there's also a reference to jealousy in the positive sense in James 4. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Jealousy, when used in the Bible, is a positive word. It's about God's passionate desire for our holiness, not to share our devotion with another. He wants to be first in our lives and he will not settle for less. I just want to say one other quick thing about this verse that talks about God punishing the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. I don't believe that these verses are teaching that God punishes the descendants of people for someone else's sin. 
We know from Ezekiel 18 that the soul that sins is the one that dies. We know from Jeremiah 31 that if the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth won't be set on edge. I don't believe this is talking about the passing on of iniquity or even that there are generational curses. I do believe that there are evil spirits that can track with families. But that's a whole nother thing to talk about. What this verse is saying is that there is a passive transference that how we choose to live our lives as parents does have an influence on the generations that follow. How we choose to live our lives will affect in all likelihood what kind of relationship our children have with God and even our children's children. We must be careful how we live, the priorities we set and what we model because how we live will certainly bear fruit in the lives of our children and even our children's children. Back then, probably three generations lived together. In summary then, we are God's special treasure and we exist as God's people for His pleasure. Remember Exodus 19 verse 4. Remember what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself. And if you obey me and if you are faithful to my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my segula, my treasured possession, even though the whole earth is mine. And you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And we saw how God shaped the identity of his people. And then in the, the latter part of chapter 19, God reveals what he is like. And the mountains shake. And there is smoke and fire and God impresses on all of the people just how great he is and how they are, they are to treat him at all times with the utmost respect and honor. And we know from Hebrews chapter 12 that that is still how are we to worship God. We're to worship him with reverence and awe, we are reminded. For our God is a consuming fire. We're not to throw out the revelation of God in the Old Testament and replace it with a diminished view of God, of the humble Jesus having laid aside his glory. You'll remember that in the book of Revelation, even John, Jesus' best friend on earth, when he saw Jesus in his risen state in heaven, glorified 
in the book of Revelation, he falls at his feet as though dead. Friends, this is the God that we serve. Friends, this is the God that we serve. He is deserving of our reverence and honor. And finally, we're to remember that God calls himself a jealous God. And he commands our loyalty and allegiance. We're to have no other God before him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for what we've learned today from your word. Thank you that we have been saved by you, that we have become your special treasure. Thank you that you love us, Lord, that you derive pleasure from knowing us, from your relationship with us. And we pray that we would be faithful to you, Lord, and that we would indeed fulfill the, the reason that you saved us for yourself and to represent you here in the world today. And thank you, Lord, for this revelation of yourself, the day the mountains shook. We pray that you would help us all to have a healthy fear of you, to respect the boundaries that you have set in place. We thank you that we can approach you now in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to always worship you with reverence and with awe. And to remember that, that you, our God, are, are mighty. And help us to remember, Lord, that you are a jealous God. That you desire our affection. That you desire our loyalty above anything else. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. For we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to be good examples for others, for our children and our children's children. And thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and that you extend your, your covenantal love to a thousand generations of those that love you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.